Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you all have had a an edifying festival and profited from the services we've had over the time that we've been observing the festival this year. <clears throat> Some, perhaps a great many who profess to be faithful Christians, find that when faced with trials, setbacks, or disasters, their faith wavers. Some have completely turned against God and denied God altogether because of failing health, the death of a loved one, marital problems, or some other serious crisis in their lives. I've known people who have done this personally. Some professing Christians have reasoned that because they're trying to practice obedience to God or exercising faith by, as it's sometimes put, claiming God's promises, that God will protect them from any serious problems in their lives. Sometimes it's assumed that because of one's endeavors to be righteous that that person will be blessed with financial prosperity, with good health, with success and happiness in their family relations and in other aspects of their lives. And that is the expected reward for their, quote, righteous conduct. When such individuals see another Christian suffering, they may suppose it's because of some secret sin or character flaw that has led to the person being cursed or punished. Or it may be the person just doesn't have enough faith to be free of suffering, perhaps not, not enough faith to be healed, not enough faith to prosper financially, or not enough faith to be free of other problems in their lives. <clears throat> Such thinking has especially been promoted by proponents of what is sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel. Followers are taught that faith and what they call positive confession or claiming God's promises and giving money to the ministry, doing the teaching, will inevitably lead to God delivering on perceived promises of prosperity, of good health, of security, and personal happiness. And these, these blessings are assumed to flow automatically from, <clears throat> from their faith, their positive confession, their giving of donations, and it's supposed to happen more or less immediately. It shouldn't be surprising then that when life turns out to be less than ideal, an individual with such perceptions might experience a crisis of faith. After all, if you're expecting God's blessings, if you're expecting to always prosper, expecting for everything to go smoothly in your life, and it turns out that it doesn't happen that way, then 
clearly you might begin to ask some questions. <clears throat> and an individual might believe that God has not lived up to his promises, assuming that such promises are made in the scriptures, and that God is to be blamed for allowing such afflictions or for not granting immediate deliverance. And this is, this is not necessarily an uncommon thing to happen among people who profess to be Christians. It has happened to people even in the church of God who have had some of these concepts and ideas. However, when one has a mature understanding of how God works in our lives, he can see through such deceptions. The fact is, anyone or any church teaching that obedience to God means that you'll be free from trials, from setbacks, and from being victimized by evil is teaching false doctrine. And such teaching is contradictory to God's word. Our faith as Christians must be based on God's word and what God's word actually teaches, not on what men say and not on what churches say, contrary to what God's word teaches. So we need to make sure that our faith is based on the proper foundation that our faith is in God and His Word, not on in men or in churches or what men say or churches say, contrary to what God Himself says in His Word. We might just ask some simple questions, you know, test this hypothesis that God promises to always bless anyone who is doing righteousness or living his life in a way pleasing to God, and that person is always going to be blessed and never subjected to any trials or difficulties. We might just ask, for example, did God protect Abel? Notice over in Genesis 4 and verse 4. <clears throat> in Genesis 4 and verse 4, we read, <clears throat> Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. And then in verse 8, however, it says, now Cain, who was Abel's brother, talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So here Abel was accepted by God. He was conducting himself in a way that God approved of, and yet he was murdered. God allowed him to be murdered. We might ask, did God protect Lazarus, the diseased beggar who was laid at the gate of the rich man, who had nothing, nothing, barely the clothes on his back evidently, and who died 
in that circumstance. Notice over in Luke chapter 16. Luke 16 and verse 20. <clears throat> there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, that is the gate of this rich man that's also mentioned in this parable. And <clears throat> notice that Lazarus was not only a beggar, destitute of worldly goods, but he was also diseased full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. So this poor man, destitute of worldly goods and diseased died but it tells us he was carried to Abraham's bosom now this did not happen immediately and we've gone into the details about this parable and other sermons we have an article about dealing with this but the point here is that Lazarus was wound up being in God's kingdom Notice in verse 23, it says, And being in torments in Hades, this is the rich man waking up in the resurrection, in his resurrection. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up, Hades, by the way, is simply a word for the grave. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus in his bosom implying a this is a metaphor for a, an, an intimate relationship. And so Abraham at this point in time would have been resurrected and Lazarus also, and Lazarus and Abraham would be together in God's kingdom because we're told elsewhere that Abraham will be in fact in God's kingdom in the resurrection. In verse 25, it says, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime, speaking to the rich man, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. So here it tells us that this man Lazarus who was destined to be in the kingdom of God in his lifetime as a flesh and blood human being received evil things even though he, he was living a life of faith we determine that he was living a life of faith because he was accepted into the kingdom of God in this parable so how do you reconcile that with the idea that if a person has faith that he is never going to suffer any evil circumstances. He's going to be prospered and have all kinds of material goods and blessings and will certainly never be sick or suffer other similar cir uh, circumstances. 
We might ask, did God protect Jesus Christ from being crucified? Jesus Christ was a young man when he died. And he died the death of a criminal. He died a horrible death. And he actually prayed and asked God to let this cup pass from him, as he put it. And yet God chose not to intervene and allowed Jesus Christ to be condemned and crucified. Did God protect Stephen? Let's read about Stephen, who had been ordained a deacon in the church. Notice over in Acts chapter 6 and verse 6, what it says about Stephen. In Acts 6 and verse 6, <clears throat> Well, it's verse 5, first of all, it says, The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And names some others here whom they set before the apostles, and when they prayed, they laid hands on them, and they were ordained to the office of deacon. But it says here that Stephen was a man full of faith. He was a man full of faith. And yet, notice what happened to Stephen over in chapter 7. Now Stephen confronted some of the Jewish leaders, actually the Sanhedrin, the, the high court and ruling body among the Jews at that time. And he confronted them with a sermon which pointed out things that they needed to repent of. <clears throat> and notice what the reaction was here in chapter 7 and verse 59. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Did God protect Stephen even though he was a man full of faith from this fate, from this persecution which resulted in his death? What about other faithful men and women over the course of the centuries? Paul wrote about some of them over in the book of Hebrews. And notice in Hebrews chapter, 36, or chapter 11 and verse 36, Hebrews 11 and verse 36. He's writing about people of faith. And he says here in verse 36, Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. Now think about that for a minute, what these people were going through. They were going through being mocked, being scourged or beaten with whips. They were thrown into prison put in chains, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted or subjected to trials and suffering, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute. Being destitute, wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins, not, not fine, expensive clothing, but clothing fashioned out of the skins of animals, 
which can be expensive sometimes, but not necessarily, and being destitute, in other words, impoverished, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. These were people who were faithful. These were people who were faithful to God and who were suffering, often as a result of their faith, often because they were faithful, they were suffering these afflictions. Well, does God protect us? You know, we make a habit, my wife and I, of praying regularly for protection, not only for ourselves, but others, especially traveling on the Sabbath and so forth. If you've been out on the interstate lately, you probably know it's a dangerous place to be at times. <laughs> and we rely on God's protection. We pray for God's protection. We pray for God's blessings in other ways, not just for ourselves, but others as well. Well, does God protect us? Does God bless us? The truth is that God does protect us, I believe, often without our realizing it. But what we need to understand is that God protects us and he blesses us in accordance with his purpose and will, not ours. In accordance with his purpose and will. And actually, when we pray for such blessings or protection, we ought to <clears throat> always understand, if not explicitly express what Jesus expressed when he prayed that God would let this cup pass from him. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so when we ask God for such things as protection or blessings, for ourselves or other people. We always need to understand that God has a purpose in mind for us, and it may not necessarily coincide with what we would prefer at all times. Also, we need to understand that God gives us his laws to promote our well-being. Notice over in Deuteronomy 5, why, does, why did God give us his laws? He gave us his laws because they're good for us. They're good for everybody. And if we keep those laws, it will be for our good. It will, just keeping the laws will turn out to enrich and bless our lives. Notice what God said here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 31. Deuteronomy 5, verse 31 <clears throat> God was speaking to Moses here, and he said, As for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, teach his people, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. So God commanded his laws to be kept 
so that they could live, so that it would be well with them, and so that they would prolong their lives. In other words, it, it, these laws promote the well-being of those who keep them. It's why God gave them to us. Now, it's not God's fault that people do not keep his laws. God has given us his laws, made them very clear and plain. In fact, many cultures, as we were just discussing a little bit before services, many cultures have laws similar to some of the commandments, at least, of God. You know, almost all cultures realize that murder, for example, is wrong or stealing is wrong and similar laws. Not all of their laws are in accordance with the basic commandments of God, but at least some idea of right and wrong exists in virtually every culture that correspond with the laws of God. But those same precepts are broken by men almost everywhere, even among those people who recognize certain precepts as being laws that should be kept, those laws are routinely broken. Even among, if you look at the history of Christianity, the history of Christian nations, nations that professed to follow Christ, what do you find in their history? You find all sorts of corruption, lying, stealing, murder, wholesale murder and slaughter of various peoples done even among Christians. Even though the book that they claim is their holy book condemns such activities. Whose fault is it that those laws have been broken and people have suffered as a consequence? It's not God's fault. It's the fault of those who have broken his laws. And God does not keep anyone from breaking his laws. God, God has given mankind free moral agency and he's given mankind free reign pretty much to do as man will, at least for now. And God, while God does intervene at times in the affairs of mankind, overall he's pretty much kept hands off and just allowed people to do whatever they will. And we see the consequences of in the world around us, what that has led to. And God said, if you keep those laws, it will be well with you. The other side of the coin is if you, if you don't keep them, then it will lead to disaster. It will lead to disaster on a personal level in people's lives, and it will lead to disaster for the nation and people as a whole, nations who do not keep God's commandments. And so people will suffer because God's commandments are being violated and broken. And God does not prevent that from happening. God does not guarantee that we'll always be protected and never afflicted. The Bible says clearly you reap what you sow. And if we ourselves break God's laws, then we may very well reap the consequences. Or if we even break physical laws, such as 
You know, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, it's probably going to hurt. Won't it? And if you do other things that break the laws of physics, you know, if you, if you try to defy the law of gravity, you're probably going to <clears throat> suffer the consequences. You know, if you're, if you're in an airplane 20,000 feet in the, in the air and somebody decides to shut off the engines, what do you think is going to happen? the laws of physics will take over and and people will die if something like that were to occur. We just saw an incident recently where a pilot who was mentally deranged evidently, evidently threw a, flew an airplane full of passengers into the side of a mountain deliberately. Those things are allowed to happen. And God does not prevent those things from happening always. Now, he may sometimes intervene, but many times he does not. <clears throat> God does not guarantee in any fashion that Christians or people who are of faith will never suffer. In fact, he guarantees just the opposite. God's word tells us that we will be subjected to suffering in this lifetime. Notice in John chapter 16, John 16, verse 33, <clears throat> Jesus said to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In the world, he said, you will have tribulation. Tribulation, suffering, difficulties, trials. This is a promise of God's word. Over in Acts chapter 14, <clears throat> Acts 14 and verse 22. Paul here was speaking to a group of people who had been converted to Christianity and he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, Acts 14 verse 22, exhorting them to continue in the faith so these were people who were of the faith and presumably faithful and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Does that sound like that your life is never going to be affected by any difficulties or trials or problems? Second Timothy chapter three. In <clears throat> verse twelve. Paul wrote to Timothy here, Second Timothy three and verse twelve, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. All who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. 
And oftentimes the suffering that has been experienced by Christians down through history has been a direct result of persecution due to their faith. And you can look at that. Not only did it occur in the period of the Old Testament, but early in the history of the church, many Christians were driven out of Judea because of their faith and their property was taken away from them. And they were, many of them evidently driven out with little more than the clothes on their back. And there were a number of other persecutions that occurred even in the first century. And still other persecutions occurred down through the centuries where often Christians who were faithful to God were not only ostracized, but often hunted down and killed or driven out into wilderness areas so that they could escape being killed. So what if close friends, family members, perhaps your own husband or wife forsook you? Would that cause you to forsake God if something like that happened in your life? What if What is more important to you, your relationship with your husband or wife or your family or friends or your relationship with God? We need to ask ourselves questions like this. What, what is the most important relationship in my life? <clears throat> I've known of people who have forsaken the truth in order to save their marriage. Or for other similar reasons. Evidently, their relationship with God did not pre take precedence over other relationships in their lives. But Christ requires of us that we put our relationship with Him above every other relationship. This is something that Jesus Christ requires of every disciple. Every true disciple must do this if he is to be a genuine disciple of Christ. Notice what Jesus himself said over here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And oftentimes this is what happens when someone begins to follow the truth. It alienates his own closest family members. And it says a man's enemies will be those of his own household. There have been wives who have been divorced by their husbands because they decided to follow Christ. There have been husbands who have been divorced by their wives. There have been women who have been beaten by their husbands because they chose to obey God and that displeased their husbands. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross 
Now, what does that mean? Take his cross is simply a metaphor for being willing to suffer. Whatever one must suffer for the sake of Christ. The cross here is symbolic of suffering. And it says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, we must be willing to give up even our own lives if that's required of us. And in, in, a, in a sense, it is required of all of us. There are things that we must give up. We must forsake our former lives. And that really, that's what baptism pictures and symbolizes is, is a, a complete change in your life so that you are not living the life you used to live. You're living a new and different life. And this is something that Christ requires of us. We find in Luke a similar statement by Jesus over in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Luke 14, verse 26. Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Notice he said, you cannot be his disciple. If you do not hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, your own life also, does God really want us to hate our father and mother? Now, the Greek word here is miso, and in this context, it means simply to prefer less, to love less by comparison, and is used in this sense various places in the scriptures. It doesn't mean you're to hate your father and mother, but by comparison, you love Christ more, just as we read in Matthew. But it, but he said, if you don't do this, if you if you put your if you prefer your father or your mother, your wife or your children before me, if you love them more, you cannot be Christ's disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, bearing the cross implies suffering and sacrifice. <clears throat> This is what Christ requires of us if we are going to be his disciples. So what if a loved one dies or what if you yourself become a victim of disease? What if you become impoverished through no fault of your own? What if you are subjected to persecution? Would that cause you to question God or to forsake him altogether? It has caused some others to, the, to do those very things, to question God. Why would God allow this to happen to me? And some have even forsaken God altogether because such things have happened in their lives. Because they had a completely false concept of what being a Christian is all about and of how God works with us is in our lives. 
we might ask ourselves, what interests me more? Manipulating God to do my will or finding out what God's will is and submitting to it. Some people's approach to God is that, that God is to be used to enrich them in some way. And so their whole approach to God is manipulating God to do what they want done. God, God is sort of a hip pocket God that they take out of their hip pocket like a genie in a bottle when they want something and they expect God to fulfill their will and desire. Is that your approach to God? <clears throat> Again, Jesus Christ, when he was facing death on the cross, said, let not my will but yours be done. We might ask ourselves, how do the trials that I have experienced in my life stack up against what many others have had to endure? Such as like Lazarus, long-term illness and poverty. I've known a number of people who were faithful Christians who were diseased, sometimes diseased from birth, and they prayed for healing. And there was no evidence that their faith was any less than other people who were perfectly healthy, and yet they remained diseased. Lazarus was diseased. Evidently, God did not heal him in his earthly lifetime. He certainly didn't give him a bag full of gold coins. How do, how do your trials stack up against something like that? What about other circumstances that others have experienced? How would your trials stack up against those who have been forsaken by their mates or other family members, those who have endured beatings, those who have endured the loss of their homes and virtually every material possession? being driven into a strange land, being tortured, imprisoned, and martyred. I don't know about you, but <clears throat> my trials have been minor compared to most of these things on a personal level. I haven't had to endure some of these things or Actually, I haven't had to endure any of them. And I'm quite sure it's not because I'm more righteous than people who have suffered these things. So, if we haven't had to endure things of this kind, perhaps what we ought to do is be thanking God for the blessings we've had instead of complaining about whatever trivial trials we've been subjected to. Sometimes trials that are trifling by comparison to
tend to overwhelm individuals who are weak in faith, who really don't understand what real faith is, and who are weak in spiritual understanding, thinking that that because they're, quote, righteous, at least in their own eyes, that they're never supposed to suffer any reverses or problems in life. People may become upset, disoriented, and confused because God does not play by their rules. One person commented to me in reference to this subject as we were discussing it, and the person made a perceptive comment and said, even God's people can get sidetracked when he refuses to read the script we have prepared for him. Odd that he does not see the wisdom of our ways. God doesn't read the script that we've prepared for him. He's got his own purpose and plan and, and his own way of working out that plan. And often it does include suffering on our part. <clears throat> Understanding and knowledge begin with the fear of God. Over in Proverbs 1 and verse 7, <clears throat> Proverbs 1 and verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if we want to have knowledge and understanding, then we need to start out with learning to fear God, which means submitting ourselves to God and yielding to His laws, putting them to work in our lives. Over in Psalm 110 and 111 and verse 10, it says, A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So if we're putting God's commandments into practice and genuinely fear God, then we will have spiritual insight we'll begin to have a deeper understanding into life's questions. And so this is something we need to work on all the time is learning to fear God, to have proper reverence toward God, and that will lead to a better comprehension of how God works with us and what God expects of us. Job was overall a person of faith and he's is even referred to as a man of righteousness and although he never turned aside from God the, the point came in his life where he was subjected to horrendous trials a number of trials which came all at once like a flood and in the midst of his suffering Job questioned God's judgment and fairness. Notice in Job chapter 34 and verse 5, and there are some very important lessons we can learn from the book of Job, especially concerning suffering and how to deal with it. In Job 5 and verse 9, <clears throat> or verse, what did I say? Job 34 and verse 5, excuse me. Job 34 and verse 5, 
<clears throat> this was a man named Elihu that was talking and commenting on the situation here with Job and his attitude toward God. And <clears throat> he said, What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said it profits man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. Job had come to the point where he had, was impugning God's sense of justice saying that it does no good to serve God. Over in Job 32 and verse 1, <clears throat> Job 32 and verse 1, it says, These three men, now these are other friends that had come to ostensibly console Job. Actually, they wound up condemning him, <clears throat> but they weren't really of much comfort. But these men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. He was righteous in his own eyes. And it, he actually began to think that he was more righteous than God in some ways. In chapter 35, verse 2, Elihu said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? Now this was Job's attitude for a while. What does it really profit to try to obey God when you have to suffer? As he was suffering. That was the question he was asking. And he began to think of himself as more righteous than God. Because God was, in fact, allowing him to endure the things that he was having to endure. And so, sometimes like Job, people in their own self-righteousness want to call God to account, as Job did. In Job 35 and verse 2, Verse uh, 4 going on here with where we were reading. <clears throat> it says, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Speaking of God. If you are righteous, what do you Give him. Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you and your righteousness, a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, who makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. 
There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. Notice in chapter 33 and verse 12. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. See, God is not accountable to us. He's not answerable to us. But to the contrary, we are accountable to him. We did not create God. He made us. And if we're righteous, it doesn't necessarily do anything for him. Or if we're wicked, it doesn't affect him directly. It affects other people, but we hurting God is beyond our capacity. And God is not accountable to us, but we are accountable to him. Over in Isaiah 45, verse 9. <clears throat> Isaiah 45 and verse 9. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? So it, would, it makes about as much sense for us to question God or to accuse God or to doubt God as it would be for a pot to say that to someone who made the pot with his hands, you have no hands. Over in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Daniel 4, and verse 35 says... All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? In other words, God does according to what he wills. And so, we're not his judges we don't have the power to call him to account or to require anything of him. Over in Job 33 and verse 12, we read, what note, excuse me, uh, Proverbs uh, 16 is what I'm looking for this time. Proverbs 16 and verse 2. <clears throat> Proverbs 16 verse 2. 
All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. The Lord God is watching us, and he is weighing the spirit. In other words, he is judging us on an ongoing basis. Proverbs 21, verse 2 Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. The Lord weighs the hearts. Again, showing that God is judging us and holding us to account. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Hebrews 12 and verse 23, it says, and Paul is comparing our position here to that of the Israelites who were before God at Mount Sinai, receiving God's law. And he says that we are come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all. To God, the judge of all. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 5. Peter wrote <clears throat> of human beings, First Peter 4 and verse 5, they will give an account to him as who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So God is the judge of mankind. He's the judge of all of us. And God never perverts justice. God is a just judge, and he does not ever pervert justice. All of his judgments are just. Notice in Job 34, again. <clears throat> Job 34 and verse 12 says, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. God does not do wickedly. He does not pervert justice. Despite, despite what Job thought, that he was not being treated fairly, we're told that God does not pervert justice. In Revelation 15 and verse 3, this is picturing the saints before Christ and the kingdom of God. It says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God and Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, just and true are your ways. Now this, as I said, pictures those individuals in the resurrection before Christ in his kingdom, and they will have come to the realization, if they did not have it before, that all of God's ways are just and true. Now, 
the book of Revelation tells about a great deal of suffering that will be endured by Christians, as do other books of the Bible. Over in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, <clears throat> we see some insight into why we are given these physical lives in the first place. And people sometimes wonder, perhaps not often enough, but sometimes people wonder, why am I alive? What's life all about? This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. What is life about? This physical life. And we find some rather profound statements here regarding that question. But here in verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon wrote, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. Or it could be translated afflicted or chastened or humbled. This gives us a pretty... Interesting clue as to why we're alive. God gives us our lives so that we may be exercised by them, which exercise can include affliction, chastening, and humbling. In chapter 3 and verse 10, chapter 3 and verse 10, Solomon wrote, I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. The God-given task which the sons of men are to be occupied. Our lives are given to us as a task or a trial. This, this life is a testing ground, and it is a place for the building of character. You know, in some ways it might be compared to basic training in the Marine Corps or something of that, that nature. You know, if you, if you go into basic training, you're subjected to a lot of pressure and a lot of things that aren't necessarily present, uh, pleasant to endure. Things that are difficult. Things that are intended to test you and try you and to build a certain kind of character, not the same kind of character that Christians are to build in growing more into the likeness of Christ, but nevertheless a type of human character. And those trials are there for that purpose. What if, what kind of uh, Marines would they be if they were never subjected to any difficulties or trials? If nothing was required of them? How effective do you think they would be as, as soldiers doing the task that they were intended to do? Paul wrote in Romans 5, beginning with verse 3, Romans 5 and verse 3, we also glory in tribulations. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character, and character hope. Did you ever stop to think that the reason that God 
requires us to endure trials is that so that we could develop character. That's what the Bible says it does. It's intended for. Of course, that is if we react properly to it. If, if we allow ourselves to be defeated by tribulations, if we are allow, allow our faith to be overwhelmed by trials, then we're not going to build character. But if we endure the trials that we have to face and remain faithful, then it will produce perseverance and, it, and perseverance will produce character and character will produce hope. And that hope will be fulfilled in God's kingdom. We need to understand that none of us is unique in suffering affliction. Sometimes if a person is suffering a severe trial, the person may begin to think that he is all alone and forsaken. Job certainly felt that way. And we read of other people in the Bible who were suffering severe trials. We read about it in the Psalms. David at times thought he had been forsaken. Elijah thought that he had been forsaken. Others have, have thought that they had been forsaken. It's not unusual for a, a person suffering a severe trial to think they have been forsaken by God and or, or perhaps forsaken by everybody. But the truth is none of us is unique in suffering affliction. Every one of us has or will suffer afflictions of some kind or other in this lifetime. They not, may not be the same affliction. Some may be, suffer, suffer greater afflictions than others, but all of us will suffer. Notice in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul wrote to the Philippians to not be in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. They were suffering persecution. And the fact that they were suffering persecution for their faith was, in, in a way, as Paul put it here, Evidence of their ultimate deliverance. First Peter chapter four and verse twelve. First Peter four and verse twelve. Peter wrote, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Don't Think, because you're suffering some trial, some severe trial that this is something strange or unexpected. But notice what he said, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. There were times when the people in various places during the New Testament era was subjected to severe trials. <clears throat> in one persecution in the 60s AD, <clears throat> Nero, the Roman emperor, 
instituted a severe persecution and was responsible for the deaths of many Christians in the Roman Empire. And they suffered horribly. This was during, this was the same time it's believed that Paul and Peter both were martyred. And historians tell us some of the things that happened at that time was Christians would be covered with pitch and tied up to a post and used as human torches at night. They would be sewn into the skins of wild animals and thrown into an arena where wild beasts would tear them to pieces. And similar horrible uh, tortures that they were subjected to. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Now we may not look at it as a blessing, but this is what Scripture says it is. Blessed are you, and why is that? For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. <clears throat> Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, then what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? <clears throat> in chapter... Well, let's, let's go on to... Read in verse 18, Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So if God allows us to suffer for his sake, then the proper response is to commit our lives to him, just as Jesus Christ did. As it goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 1, or verse, let's go, go to verse 6 here. Therefore humble yourselves in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen, strengthen and settle you. So notice here that it is plainly stated that we are expected to suffer and we're expected to endure it in faith. This doesn't imply that someone who is a faithful Christian is going to be spared suffering. It tells us 
on the contrary, that if we are faithful Christians, we will suffer and we must endure it. And that suffering is permitted and that it is even given to us in a way as a blessing to humble us, to test our faith, to help us to learn patience, to perfect us. And also it is allowed as a witness for others, a witness to others. The word from which we get martyr, which is usually applied to someone who is killed for their faith, actually means witness. And often people have had to suffer and endure persecution among other reasons so that they could witness to others through enduring persecution. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 9. <clears throat> Matthew 24 and verse 9. He said of Christians, he said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, for the name of Christ. And in Mark 13, Mark 13 and verse 9, we see this same statement of Jesus with a little bit more information added to it. It says, watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. <clears throat> you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them or a witness to them. Romans 8 and verse 35 <clears throat> Romans 8 and verse 35, Paul wrote, <clears throat> who, sh who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will any of these things separate you from Christ? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So, this is often the lot of faithful people, God's faithful people, counted as sheep for the slaughter. 
subjected to tribulation, to distress, to persecution, to famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. <clears throat> In Second Corinthians 12, <clears throat> And verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had some sort of infirmity. Some believe he had a severe eye disease, which seems to be implied in something that he wrote, but but uh, whatever it was, he <clears throat> said that in his infirmity that he realized that he was weak and that his strength came not from himself but from Christ. And... So he said, verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Often, we don't really get serious about our relationship with Christ unless we're having problems and trials, troubles. Maybe we you know, it's been said that there are no atheists in in foxholes, and <clears throat> and we're all familiar with the concept of a deathbed conversion. Sometimes severe trials get our attention in ways that that we our attention is not directed to God at other times when we're doing well and prospering and everything is going smoothly, quite often we tend to not think about God so much. Not that we should do that, but sometimes that's the way it works. Paul used, or God used afflictions to help Paul, to, to help him avoid being filled with arrogance and pride and vanity to help him be humbled and to look to Christ and to exalt Christ. And it can work for us in the same way. In Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, <clears throat> Paul said, 
We ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. <clears throat> now, how does this stack up with the idea of some that if people are suffering some sort of trial, it must be because they don't have faith or it must be because God is trying to punish them or is punishing them for some secret sin. But Paul said, we boast of you among the churches for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations which you endure. He didn't write to them and say, you all are enduring horrible persecutions and tribulations. There must be something wrong with you. <laughs> he said, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. The fact that they were suffering for the kingdom of God was evidence that they were going to be counted worthy of that kingdom. In Hebrews 5 and verse 7, This is speaking of Jesus Christ and says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Even Jesus Christ humanly learned obedience on a different level, perhaps, by the things that he suffered. It may be easy to profess faith in Christ if it's not going to cost you anything. But to follow Christ when it's going to cost you, perhaps even your life as it did Jesus, that's a different matter. That takes obedience to a whole different level. James 1 verse 2. <clears throat> James 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Well, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. See, God tests our faith. And the way He tests our faith often is through trials. And one of the things that God wants to see happen when He tests our faith is the building of patience. The faith and patience are very closely related. As Paul was writing about what faith is, you know, if you have something in your hand, uh, you don't need faith to believe that you will receive what you already have in your hand. But if faith is something that you look for that's not yet realized, and to realize something that is not yet 
a personal reality requires patience to, to maintain that faith, that confidence that God will keep his promises. So persecution and trials and tribulations help us build faith and patience, which go together. Chapter 5 and verse 8 of James. Chapter 5 and verse 8. <clears throat> you also be patient, establishing your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now the coming of the Lord has been at hand for thousands of years, but it is still at hand. And we're to be patient until it gets here. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. We were reading about Job earlier. And seen, and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. If you read the end of the book, in Job that too is a lesson because after Job endured horrible trials, he was delivered from them. And that's a lesson for us that after we have endured in God's own time and whenever that might be for each one of us, then there will be deliverance. God's not going to leave us suffering for eternity. In fact, our suffering in terms of eternity will last very briefly, a very short time in, in relation to eternity. The rewards of God's kingdom, though, will last forever and ever and ever. It may seem like a long time to us. And as I said, some people have suffered their entire lives from one trial or another. But even that is a short span of time compared to eternity. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice when the genuineness of our faith is going to be fully rewarded. It's not going to be, for the most part, in this lifetime. It will be in God's kingdom, fully rewarded. Meanwhile, we are called to lives of sacrifice. And sacrifice often means suffering. We need to understand what it is we're called to. We're not called to just <clears throat> have 
blessing after blessing heaped upon us in this lifetime and never have to endure any trials. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We are to be living sacrifices. We are to be living lives of sacrifice. And often sacrifice implies suffering. It implies going without. It implies giving up something. Sometimes that can be even our lives. Literally. But in due time, in the time that He chooses, not necessarily our time or the time that we would prefer, but in in the time that He chooses, God promises to deliver us from every trial. We will be tried, but we will be delivered too. Notice in Psalm 34, that is, if we endure, we will. In Psalm 34 and verse 17, <clears throat> the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Notice it doesn't say they won't have any troubles, but it says God will deliver them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them, or out of them all. Isaiah 49 in verse 8, Isaiah 49, verse 8. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. But notice the time element here. It says in an acceptable time, in a day of salvation, we can expect deliverance. In Hebrews 10 and verse 35, Hebrews 10 and verse 35. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. What he's saying is do not lose faith, because the reward is great. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Yet For yet a little while he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. 
But that salvation may not come for us, will not come for us fully until the resurrection. God decides in each case when the time will be for us to be relieved of a trial or any, all of our trials. Ultimately, it will be the resurrection, but in some cases it may be sooner. In some cases it may not be sooner. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 3, notice what Solomon wrote. He said, there is a time to heal or to, to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. So, God decides when the time is to heal. God decides when is the time to restore us and deliver us from our trials. Over in Psalm 27, Psalm 27 and verse 13, it says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart if I had not believed or if I had not had faith. And it goes on to say, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. There are actually a number of other scriptures along the same lines. I have several of them written down here that I'm not going to read today, but I think you get the point. We could spend more time reading other scriptures that instruct us to wait on God, to simply wait on God and wait for God's deliverance, to realize that there will come a time of deliverance, there will be a day when our trials will be over with, when we will be delivered from them and receive the reward of salvation. And that salvation will be not only salvation from our trials, but every conceivable kind of blessing. Yes, God does allow the faithful to suffer. But if we patiently endure and wait on God, He will wipe away every tear. And where there had been sorrow and suffering and pain, there will be boundless and unending joy. 